0: Turn with me to John chapter 17. We're going to continue this morning going through the book of John. And before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, we are humbled to even think that you would look at us and show affection and kindness and mercy and grace. We have never met any of the conditions that you have required. We do not show the same love and return or respect. We place conditions on you constantly. Even the preacher this morning is in desperate need of grace. To even get through a sermon about grace, Lord, requires so much power and mercy that comes from you. So God, I ask that everyone that's here this morning, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Strengthen our hearts to trust in the glorious grace that you have given us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me read real quickly, John 17, 15 through nine, uh, uh, 18, this is the section that we've been in for a while, and you'll learn why here in a reason. Uh, at our church, we like to go through books of the Bible, working verse by verse, and doing so causes the preacher to cover subjects that he probably otherwise would not choose to cover on his own, because I would rather much rather choose things that are easier to cover. And this morning, we have things that are a little bit more complicated. Verse 15 says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them in, keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Well, we're going to continue our time through the words of Jesus' prayer. This is his final declaration to the men that work alongside with him called his disciples. And two weeks ago, we covered uh, verse 15 specifically concerning the priority of Christ and his request to the Father, which was keep them from the evil one. Now comparatively, when you read what Christ has commissioned the church to do and this specific request and the promise that's accompanied with it, this keeping them from the evil one, it appears uh, in message to contradict what you hear in modern Christianity. We are encouraged to, in modern the modern Christian messages, you're encouraged to live an obedient lives because through your obedience, that is where God brings protection and provides for you and ultimately blesses you. The natural result will be people who become primarily concerned about their spiritual growth because it positively or negatively, depending on how well you do, affects their lives. And specifically, when it comes to our comfortability. When tragedy happens, something that necessarily doesn't fall in our plans, we blame either ourselves for our lack of dedication or we end up having a struggle with God, asking him the big why question. Why would you let this happen to me? Look how faithful I've been. Why would you let this happen? And then last week, we connected verses 15 all the way through verses 18. And it is here that God's prayer of protection or protecting us from evil, from the evil one, Satan, is brought into full color for us to see. What does Jesus mean by this? You know, God did not leave us on earth to live the best life we could uh, somehow put together. If you think about that, there's there's a lot about this life that is not its best. And the promises that we have of the new life to come, which is a, a world without sin, And for those of you that may not know, heaven is not one big, long worship service where we stand in white robes. You weren't originally created that way in the garden, and it will not be that way in the new garden or the new heavens and the new earth. It's a glorious awaiting for us, but this is not what God has. This is not the best God has in store for us. So Jesus told the disciples that he left them here with a mission, and it is to carry out What he himself had come here to do in the first place. Jesus did not come here to try and fix the brokenness of the world. Which is confusing. This is a total side note, not in my notes, but think of it this way. Did Jesus heal every possible person that was sick? Is that what scripture communicates to us? It's not. He did not come to heal and abolish sickness on this earth. It will be abolished one day, but not here. So the priority of the believers clearly presented to us right here in John 17, and thankfully will be clarified throughout the rest of the, uh, rest of the New Testament letters, is that our mission is to advance the gospel, which is the same message that Christ said, I've come to seeking to save that which is lost. So last week I presented from Scripture that we are called to Basically, the mission of the church is to evangelize the world. But, here was the controversy, there was not a call for every Christian to be an evangelist. Before you pick up the heretic board and throw it at me, hear me out for a second. Our priority as a redeemed child of God, the commissioning that we've been given, is to advance the gospel around the world so the light of Christ would draw the lost sheep Into the fold. This is what he says I'm leaving you here to do. But the way in which this is advanced is primarily through the mission of the church or the organization of the church. Everyone has the opportunity to preach the gospel, but not all of you are preachers or pastors. Just because you have the opportunity to do it doesn't mean you've been gifted or called to be a pastor. The same is to be true many of us will have the opportunity and can and should evangelize, but that does not mean we've all been given the gift of evangelism we talked about this last week if i were to say we're going to close the service down right now we're going to hop in our car we're going to go over to walmart we're going to walk around and share the gospel with people it would probably be me by myself there (laughs) service over oh john i'm not feeling well i think i got the flu that's going around i'm not going to repeat that sermon and encourage you if you didn't hear it you can go back and listen to it on the podcast Well, this morning we are going to build on the last two weeks providing some answers to some common questions. When it comes to fulfilling our mission as a Christian, advancing the gospel, what does it look like? If it's not street preaching, everybody should be street preaching or holding up signs that are obnoxious and sometimes misspelled. If it's it's not door knocking, what is it that God, what is the, the primary means that God has given the church? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So what does it look like to be in the world? Going back to John 17, he says, I'm not taking you out of the world. Father, don't take them out of the world, but I'm leaving you in the world. And not only am I leaving you there, I'm sending you with, with a mission. So what does it look like to be in the world and fulfill our mission to seek and to save that which is lost? Now, to answer this question, I need to provide some clarity around two confusions when it comes to how this mission is accomplished, which in turn will help us clarify what God is calling us to do. So here's the first clarification. Confusion between what we call the sacred versus the secular. The sacred versus the secular. We compartmentalize our lives into really two categories. And sometimes we don't even realize that we do this. It just comes naturally. We have actions that we do for God, and then we had actions to survive as a human. They're not really related to God. We don't we don't relate those two together. So when I'm at church or doing church functions, that's a sacred act that, that is part of God's mission for my life. When I'm at school or on my job, cleaning the house, changing a diaper, we disconnect those from being sacred. Those just seem to be secular. They're just part of the world. Speaking of changing diapers, thankfully, I don't have to change diapers anymore. I did change four kids' diapers for many years. And I would say the only thing that I remember that I liked about changing diapers was that look on the child's face when you were changing their diaper and they weren't screaming, and it it, it was like you were the best thing that ever happened to them. I do miss, I do miss seeing that, but I don't miss anything else about it. Everything that is connected to church or some kind of Christian charity, we consider to be uh, non—we consider to be non-spiritual or part of the secular world. So if it's not related to the church or reading your Bible or praying, it's secular. So religion is what we do on Sundays, and life is what we do starting Mondays. Everybody following me here? Now, I'm sure everyone here has probably heard the instructions, no matter what you do, right, do all for the glory of God. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And it sounds biblical, and it is sound biblical wisdom, you know, Paul even tells us to eat for the glory of God, which I will obey this command later today. But I'm confident everyone in this room struggles to know how that really works. How do I know that I'm, that God is being glorified when I wash my car or I mow my lawn or, or take out the trash? How do I know God's being glorified in those things? They seem mundane disconnected to the religious sections of our world? Must I be humming some kind of a tune while doing this? Or do I need to have a smile on my face? Or but I'm memorizing scripture, is that how God is glorified? To glorify God seems more complicated than what Paul makes it sound. Now, if you don't struggle with this, then you might be the only one in the room. And we'll switch places and I'll sit on the front row. But I struggle with this as well. I think it's easier to simply eat my lunch than trying to have a convo with my coworker or a five year old child and be thinking about the glory of God at the same time. And some of you are thinking, my coworker is like a five year old. This is because we have disconnected the joy of what we are doing from the function of how it's accomplished, or we have disconnected the sacred versus the secular for instance i think of uh, the game of golf i think of golf a lot cuz i am entertained by it i like it i find joy in playing it uh, about learning about it and if i were to convince you that you should also too like golf and this is the instructions that i gave you now to to be to understand golf and to play golf you must have uh, the right spine angle access tilt and, and the proper weight distribution between your toes and the ball of the feet. And you should have the experience of a 60% weight shift in the back of your swing and a 90% weight. Are you following me? Are you excited about playing golf? I'm sure you would say, yeah, not interested in something that is supposed to be fun, yet that complicated. And when you hear something like, glorify God in everything you do, it just seems, it's so simple and yet it's so complicated. Paul is collapsing for us here in 1 Corinthians and we're gonna see Jesus doing the same thing. Paul's collapsing the sacred with the seculars. Well, I wouldn't say he's collapsing. He never separates them. He doesn't believe you eat breakfast and then go to church to glorify God. They're not mutually disconnected. There are not two parts of our lives. You know, the side of it that God purchases, which is our spiritual side, and then there's our side, which is work, life, family, and community. The second one, I think, is going to help you explain this first one. So everything that we do is related to the mission. There is no sacred and secular. When you leave here, you're not going to go then do something that's unspiritual. I'll make this connection here in a minute. The second clarification I need to bring to us is the difference between the ordinary versus extraordinary. The ordinary versus extraordinary. So the, the more extraordinary our life appears to be spiritually, the more we assume one is accomplishing the mission of God. Missionaries who live in dangerous countries, who smuggle Bibles are truly on mission with what Christ has left us here to do. They are advancing the mission of the gospel. But the person working a desk job, cleaning a house, or pushing a lawnmower isn't really doing much for the kingdom of God. This is what we set up, the ordinary versus the extraordinary. We then look at these stories and conclude that this is how God wants us to advance the gospel, through the extraordinary adventures into the dangerous unknown. Anything less than this seems lazy and self-serving. It is true that God calls some to extreme circumstances. Unfortunately, Mr. Apostle Paul was called into some horrible circumstances. But this is not the normative life of the believer. And How do we know this? Because if it was the normative life of the believer, it is what you would read in the New Testament letters to the church. This idea that unless I am living a radical life, the gospel is not being advanced. Well, in both of these, the secular versus the sacred and the ordinary versus the extraordinary, what is is missing is this overarching umbrella of God's sovereignty. We assume that God's going to advance his mission in the way we think it should be advanced. It's logical. God should do it this way. Let me ask you this question. Does it seem logical that a God dies on a cross and he's humiliated? Does that seem powerful to you? Not only does he die on a cross, but he dies on the cross with the accusation and alongside thieves, and he's crucified as a traitor and blasphemous. If you were to come up with a victory story, I'm pretty sure the hero wouldn't end up dead. Not in that way. As The more I read scripture, I do not see God doing things the way humans would do them. As a matter of fact, every time humans set out to do something, God goes, not that way. <laughs> and has to correct ship. I've, I've, I, my heart breaks for anyone who feels this, this, this stretch between the ordinary versus the extraordinary. The man who's in a job, but he's like, man, I don't really feel like I do much for my community. I, like, I don't really feel like I do anything. I mean, my job just really kind of pays the bills. That's all I do. Or the mom who's at home with babies. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm really good at folding up them diapers, and I can shoot it across the room, bank it off the wall, and it goes in. But what value is there? There's no value. I don't feel like I'm doing anything that's extraordinary for God. Well, God in his sovereignty made it very clear in scripture how it is that he advances his mission. And the way he advances his mission is not through the extraordinary. That's not normal. He actually advances it through what we call ordinary means. So here's the three ordinary means in which God has set up for his church to advance. First of all, God uses ordinary means such as to comfort and strengthen the church. We've mentioned this multiple times. The way in which God cares for us here, this body right here, the way he cares for us, it's so simple. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. Or as someone said to me recently, it's not rocket surgery. I didn't know what that meant, but I thought it was funny. God uses his word. We study it. We preach it. We fellowship around it. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. This is what we do on Tuesday and Wednesday nights and in our home fellowship groups. We believe that the preaching and teaching of God's word is how he strengthens and cares for his church. We also believe that that God uses the table. Every week we come to the table to receive from God. This is not just a symbol. We believe that God's presence comes and he encourages us. He, He encourages us through communion and prayer and also through fellowship of the believers. These all seem mundane. And we do them week in and week out, and yet God promises to come and strengthen his people there. But here's the second common means that God uses. God uses ordinary means to find the lost sheep. Do you ever find it interesting when Jesus sends the disciples out into the world to to make disciples or to find people? He never really told them how to do it. Oh, well, I mentioned this last week. If you go read in the New Testament, Paul never tells you how to find the lost sheep. Neither does Peter or James or John, which so I think is interesting. Like methods. We think of methods today, door knocking, signs, street preaching, evangelistic tracts. That's mostly what pops into our brain and awkward conversations, right? If you were to die today while you're sitting next to somebody on a plane, what? Do you think we're going to die? What do you know that I don't know? God uses an ordinary means, and here, here's going to be the hard pill to swallow because it's going to seem too ordinary. The ordinary means that God uses in Scripture, which we're going to learn again from John 17, is that God uses love. Love is the means that God uses to advance the mission of the gospel around the world. Specifically, to help you understand an application, God has called us to love what? Our neighbor. Jesus says, All of the law and all of the prophets can be summed up in two commands that I give you. And these are the two commands. Love God and love neighbor as yourself. What does the New Testament writers emphasize almost in every letter? How to love God and how to love your neighbor. Those are the two instructions we get constantly. So the question then becomes, who is our neighbor? And immediately we think, oh, well, like, you know, like the guy that lives next door. That's my neighbor. No, We get clarification on that, too. It's not the guy that lives next door. Neighbor is really just grouping of anyone that you come in contact with. So clearly, if you're married, it starts with your spouse. Your spouse is your first neighbor to whom that you love and, and express the gospel to. And then the second one would be your family. They are the ones that are around you the most. And yet when we think of evangelizing and caring for the world, we don't go wife, children. We think of outside. And then the next one would be your community, your surrounding community, those that you work around, your occupation. These are all the others. These are all neighbors. You know, in essence, it truly doesn't matter what you do for a living because God does not say these occupations equal, great evangelistic opportunities, and these occupations do not. Comparatively speaking, your occupations have a better opportunity of evangelizing people more than I do because I'm around you all the time. I'm caring for you. When you think about the mission that's to go forward, the level of your income whether it be great or small. And the prestige of your job doesn't matter because the mission is not what you do for a living. The mission is how can you love someone in that mission? That's the mission. So first of all, God uses ordinary means, simple means to to help his church. God uses ordinary means the gift of love of his church in the community. And if you tie the two together, that's how God's glorified. When Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever, you do, do all to the glory of God, it comes through the if you it's in First Corinthians, what's the big chapter coming up in First Corinthians? It's in chapter 10. What shows up in chapter 13? Paul explains how it's done. He says, Without love, none of this matters. The way in which we glorify God in everything we do is that we do it with the heart and the mission of love, to love. So here's a question for you in application. I don't uh, do like application stuff very often, but we're going to do it today. What is, we're going to connect your love with something that's very important here. What is the purpose of your good works? Do you ever think about this? Everybody in here would say, if you're a Christian, you should be doing good works, right? And then if I were to ask you, what are these good works? Just name me some. You are know, like, well, you know, to give and be kind. and uh, I guess help the poor. <laughs> we kind of struggle because we don't know how to associate good works. We associate good works with, oh, well, they prove I'm a Christian. When I do good works, uh, that proves I'm a good, uh, that proves that, that I, that I, yeah, I'm really, I'm a follower of, of God. So technically, our good works are for Jesus. So Jesus can look at them and say, yeah, yeah, yeah you're doing your job. Almost like, you know, here's the job requirements for being a Christian. So the second way that we do it is uh, we do good works because we think somehow good works is what causes us to grow. And that goes back to, well, if we're growing, then God blesses us and God's happy with us. And we definitely want God happy with us. So we need to grow. So I'm going to do good works in order for us to grow. But that is not how good works are given to the believer. Your good works, I'm just going to, there's there's a book by Luther, Martin Luther, on the vocation of the believer, which hopefully sometime soon I'm going to do some sermons on this. But the author, when concluding Luther and Luther's understanding of how God saves us by faith alone and what's required of us, he concludes this. God doesn't need your good works. Well, why would he say that? Because you are never saved, nor are you kept saved, and nor are you sanctified by your obedience. So God does not need your good works. The question then becomes, well, then who does need your good works? Because we're told to do good works. It's very obvious in Scripture. Who needs your good works? The author concludes, your neighbor does. Your neighbor does. Why does your neighbor need your good works? Because it's through your love and obedience that they are either drawn closer in love to Christ or drawn into the love of Christ by the gospel. This is where your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ is absolutely foundation. If you believe that your good works are necessary to either save you or keep you saved, you're gonna be so focused on making sure you're pleasing God that you'll never truly love your neighbor as you should. It's what we call an internal focus. There's a phrase in Latin during the Reformation that came out, it's called extranos, in O-S. It means outside of. We find that God is pleased with us and God accepts us for who we are by something that is always outside of us. That's the foundation. So by faith alone, God accepts us and saves us and then sends us out and says, because of what you have received outside of yourself, take it and now, Give it out, which is to share the love. God's ordinary means of advancing the gospel is your love of everyone that is in your circumference in every situation, whether it's your eating or taking out the trash. It is to give and express love. So every act of advancing the mission of the gospel, no matter how small it may seem to you, is connected because... The mission is accomplished by something as simple as loving someone. Now, let me be very clear, as I said last week. No one is ever loved into the kingdom. No one is ever loved into the gospel. Paul pointedly says, unless they hear the gospel, they cannot be saved. But as Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, that they are the salt and the light of the world, meaning that they are the ones who draw those in darkness out of darkness into the light. And how is it accomplished? He tells his disciples, your love for one another is how the world will know that you are my disciples. It's through the ordinary means of just loving people. I read this helpful quote by Luther for you this morning. It says this in his book, Freedom of the Christian. When we think freedom of the Christian, we think, oh, I can go do whatever I want. Actually, Luther concludes you are now free to go do what you're supposed to do, which is love. He says, man, however, needs none of these good works for his righteousness and salvation. Therefore, he should be guided in all his works by this thought and contemplate this one thing alone, that he may serve and benefit others in all that he does, considering nothing except the need and advantage of his neighbor. The need and advantage of his neighbor. When you think about this, that means it does not matter what you do for a living. It really doesn't. If you make a million dollars or you make $50,000, it does not matter what you do. Your mission is always the same. Love the person to whom your vocation is, has you in contact with. And in doing so, you are actually accomplishing the mission that God has for you. This is where we're going to connect the sovereignty of God and ordinary versus extraordinary. It's very clear that the Proverbs tell us that man decides his ways and God directs his paths. I know that to be true because I never imagined myself pastoring a church in a small town, Spring Hill. I'm a California boy and I thought I'd always be a California boy. And I made plans to stay in California. And well, look at here. I'm here now. God is the one who directs us because God knows sovereignly where his sheep are and who it is that belongs to him. And he says, You want to know how it is that you are to find those sheep? Love people around you. It's the ordinary act, it's not extraordinary. You're not living on the streets in a box working with the homeless. I can remember when I was working with college students and I was trying to teach them, listen, the way in which you advance the gospel begins by how you care for one another. And all they wanted to do in their mind was, we need to get out there. We need to help the homeless. So I sent them out one weekend to do it, go help the homeless. And I came back and I said, tell me one of their names. Anybody. Tell me where they're from. Let me ask you this. Are you going to ever see them again? And if not, how is it that you can share the love of Christ with them? There's nothing wrong with going out and helping the homeless. As a matter of fact, we are to help the poor and the needy. It's commissioned to the church. But the way that the gospel goes forward is when every mom and every dad And every person in this congregation finds it that their mission, that no matter who the person is, the person in front of them, they're going to love them. And trust in God's sovereignty and knowing that that love and that expression is going to lead to wherever it is that God wants them to lead and prayerfully to the gospel. This is where, going back to what I mentioned last week, when Paul and both Peter say, Be ready to give every man an answer of the hope that lies within you. You start expressing this love. You start being kind and gracious and showing this love. People are going to stop you and say, what's up? (laughs) Why are you doing this? What's going on with you? Clearly, you don't ever uh, claim to be good. You're always talking about yourself being a sinner. Clearly, uh, it's not about you. You keep talking about this thing called, what's going on? It says, be ready to give that answer. Because when you draw people into the light and the means is love, they're going to want to know why. And that's how God has designed it. The affections, not only we have for each other, but the affections for the world. Let me add this one thought for you. There's so much I want to say, but I don't want to say too much because it's going to be hard to digest. When you think about what really matters in life, we pursue a lot. And I, this is a kind of a, I'm going to connect my last two sermons together now for you and conclude it in this final sermon so we can get through John. Uh, To pursue, to, to to pursue happiness and protection is, is you're going to be disappointed. Something's going to disappoint you. And there is, we live in a dangerous world. So if that's how you're going to create your world, you're in trouble. Because I've got news for you. You are going to die. There is no protection from death. But thankfully, we're not promised that this life is cared for. It's our next life. Secondly, if you're trying to pursue the blessings and acceptance with God through personal growth, you're going to, secondly, be disappointed. You can't do enough to impress God. You can't. There has never been a human being that's been impressed, that has ever impressed God go read Ephesians I'm sorry go read Hebrews chapter 11 of people who did some pretty extraordinary things the writer of Hebrews clarified it's by faith they accomplished those works Jesus literally says it is impossible to please God without what not your actions he says without faith and so if we're not pursuing self-improvement, and we're not pursuing comfortability, we then look at the command of Jesus, which is to advance the gospel in the world. And he makes it very clear. This is how the advancement of the gospel happens. The church advances the gospel by the way that they love for each other and the way they love the community. And in those develop opportunities they then share the good news. For me, this releases I want to love with all of my being, my family. I want to love with all of my being, my wife, my neighbors, who happens to be here this morning. I want to love everyone that's around me because I believe in the sovereignty of God and that through this love will open up our opportunities of the gospel, even though it may not be me that shares the gospel. But I know through the sovereignty of God's power that this is his plan. It's ordinary. I did receive this question this week and I thought it'd be helpful for all of us to hear the answer to it. Well, then John, is it wrong then to provide for my family and and make sure my family's safe and cared for? Well, isn't that the loving thing to do? (laughs) To love them is to care for them. To love them is to protect them. There's nothing wrong with pursuing those things. As a matter of fact, to have a nice home is not anti-gospel. To have an appealing home so that people come in and feel comforted and welcome is called hospitality. None of those things are wrong. We use our time and we use our money to love those around us and to love the world. And we live because of love. We live wise with our money as well. We're not frivolous with our money so that we can also use it to care for others. So it doesn't matter what you do or who you are or what your context is you can always be advancing the gospel if there's someone standing in front of you by loving them you are advancing the gospel it's freedom because this is a this is a conversation i had with two of our deacons this week as we hear these intense conversations it's like wow life is, is short and there's death and then you think about, oh, the mission of the God's the mission's got to go out and it's the primary mission and all that matters. And so am I like to abandon my family and go be a missionary? It feels so complicated. And so what I conclude with this is this. You've been saved by grace alone. Nothing can change that. You believe in the gospel. You have a firm foundation. Then because of that, he says, I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm leaving you in the world because you need to accomplish the mission, which the mission is. Seeking to save that which is lost. And here's the how it happens. This is the part I feel like gets confused. It happens by you simply loving those around you. That's how the mission is accomplished. Let me encourage you with this. Just go read Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians. They're not very long books. You're gonna hear Paul do the same thing over and over and over again. You are safe and secure in the glorious, sovereign God. Rest there And this is how you then love those around you. He doesn't talk about what kind of money you should have or what level of home you should have or what level of car you should have. Those things, it doesn't matter. What matters is, are you loving and caring for those around you? Well, John, should I not pursue a promotion at my job? Can you love more people by pursuing a promotion at your job? My answer is, you absolutely can Unless your promotion is gonna cause you to do something unethical, like you've got to do something illegal, there's nothing wrong with advancing your career. God in his sovereignty knows exactly where he's putting you and he knows exactly who's gonna be standing in front of you and he knows exactly who needs to be loved by his people. You lose your job tomorrow? Like, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. Whatever job you find next, that's where God wants you. Start your own company? Well, John, I have this ambition to start this company and so I can make millions of dollars. And Go do that. Can you love more people that way? Then go do that. Remember, the mission is to love people so that we have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now, let me clarify. Let me make very, very clear here. To love people is not to be bugging them while at work to share the gospel with them. That's not what he says. If you are hired to be a public school teacher and to teach history and they tell you this is what you were to teach, then you love those students, and you love those coworkers, and you care for them, and you do your job. Because that's your job. Your vocation from God. He knows that you're a school teacher. If you're an assembly line worker, then you do your best, and you love your boss, and you love the people on the line with you, and you do your job. You don't distract them trying to share. That's not what he's saying. It's through the advancement of the of our love that then draws them into the light. I used to be a manager at a retail store. And I tell you what, when I was hiring people and they told me they were a Christian, it made me nervous. Basically, I said, oh, so you're lazy. And I eventually had to pull some of these Christians aside and say, look, I too am a Christian. But I have been hired. And I get paid to do a job. And the right thing and the ethical thing to do and the loving thing to do is to do your job. Which is to sell computers. And they somehow couldn't compute in their mind. Like, oh, no, 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 I need to be on mission and sharing the gospel. It's like, that's that's not why I hired you. So please, that pressure that you put on yourself that, oh, I need to be sharing the gospel. Listen, you love and you care and you trust in God's sovereignty that he will bring opportunities in your way. And when that opportunity comes, you can share the gospel. But that may never be you. It might be an invitation to church, which some of you were invited today. It might be uh, an invitation to a Bible study or to a dinner. Point of it is, God makes it a very ordinary life. We receive love and we give love, and that is how God advances his mission. Well, then we're gonna move to the table. I will tell you this: it's really easy to talk about love, like to tell you, hey, you need to love people. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I know how hard it is to love humans, for I am a human, and I am married to a human, and I have four little humans that live in my house, and to love them is often complicated. And to love my neighbors, and to, to love those who are around me, and to love you is complicated. This is why it's very important in the commissioning of Christ when he says, love God first and then love one another because it's the love of God that then motivates us to love each other. It's the love of God. This is why every week we remind ourselves to the table that Jesus literally says, no greater sacrifice has a friend done this than to lay his life down for his friends. It's the greatest act of love. And it is that motivation that we find. We look at what Christ has done, complete self-sacrifice. He took on the absolute anger and wrath of God for our place. And he says, I did it because I love you. He then says, take this love that you see in the gospel and use that as your motivation. It's unconditional. It never ends. It's mercies we cannot send, which then means to the best of our abilities, we try and love the world unconditionally and without end with mercy. So, as we take the table this morning, let's use this as our motivation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity. There's so much confusion in this world what we should be doing, what we, sh- we shouldn't be doing. Lord, it's, you seem to make things so simple. Come unto me, all you are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. And that rest is found in what you do for us, not what we do for you. And then you send us out saying, you are loved. You are cared for. And you should say, just, just love. Share the gospel through love. And God, we clutter it so much. So Lord, we are here this morning to receive, to, be, to have our faith and our foundation strengthened again, to find our motivation not in what we must do for you, but we find our motivation in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.